This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today we're continuing our message series through Exodus called The God Who Saves. We've been talking about how the Exodus story is not just the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but it also is our story of God always leading us from where we are to where he wants us to be. Today we'll be in Exodus chapter 25 and then also look at chapters 32 through 34 and see what the Exodus story teaches us about experiencing God. So if you are familiar at all with Exodus, then you're probably thinking, wait, you skipped a really big, important part. Exodus chapter 20 is probably one of the most famous portions of Exodus. It's the Ten Commandments, the the ones that we are all familiar with. Um, We're not jumping over that because we don't think it's important. Uh, So if you're you're already ready to get fired up, you don't have to. Uh, You know, you can just relax and take a deep breath. Uh, But we're not not tackling it purely because we don't have time to do it uh, justice and to do it in the the depth that is required. And also because we we just walked through those um, back in the fall of 2018. We took nine weeks at Christian Chapel, worked through the Ten Commandments, so if you uh, want to hear more about that, you can go to christianchapel.com slash sermons. And if you'll scroll down uh, about a third of the way down, you'll see that, that one with the red box around it. It says, when working harder isn't working. So we took nine weeks. Um, there are 10 commandments, but we did one and two together. So nine weeks and walked through all of those and talked about what did that commandment mean? Why did God give it to us? How does Jesus come and fulfill that commandment? And how does he call us to an even greater obedience and empower us to do that by his spirit? So uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to work through those. There's about probably five hours of content there. So it's not that we don't, it's just that we don't have time. I mean, I could have done five hours on the Ten Commandments, but I figured some of us had things to do. Not me, but maybe you. Uh, So, because I'd be happy to do that again. But instead, we're going to kind of jump ahead to Exodus chapter 25. So they have, uh, Moses has been given the Ten Commandments where we're picking up the story. He is still on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and God is giving him instructions, not just the Ten Commandments, but all about how the Israelites are to be different. And what we're going to see this morning is that God calls the people of Israel out, not just to free them from slavery, but to introduce them into an entirely new way of living, where he has a purpose and a plan for every single part of their life. There's nothing he doesn't care about. There's nothing he doesn't want to be involved in. And so as we get to um, Exodus 25, we see that God is starting to talk to us about how we experience him. Now, experiencing God is one of those things that means different things to different people. So in, in some church circles, experiencing God means experiential worship, right? That, that we're going to feel what we're doing with God. We're going to have these really, really kind of highlight moments with him. And and that's great. That's wonderful. That's kind of the the church culture I grew up in. Other churches experiencing God is a, a, a little more traditional, maybe has a little more form and ritual to it. But there are certain just patterns established of this is how we experience God. And and then for some of us maybe experiencing God is one of those like, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds kind of weird. Uh, And and so my hope this morning is just to walk us through this portion of the Exodus story and see that God intends for us not just to know about him, but to know him, not just to uh, have an experience of him, but to have an ongoing experience with him. So as we jump into Exodus chapter 25, we find this one little line in verse 8 
where God says to Moses, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Now, this line is contained in an extended section where God is describing the tabernacle that the Israelites are supposed to build. So remember, they have come out of Egypt. They don't really have a a framework for who God is or how God is to be worshiped. And so in, in this portion of Exodus, what God is doing is establishing, this is who I am, this is the difference it makes in your life, and this is how you're going to worship me. These are the things you're going to incorporate to remember who I am, what I require, and what difference that makes for you. And so of the remaining 16 chapters in Exodus, 13 of them are describing the various details of the tabernacle. If you've ever worked through an annual Bible reading plan, this is usually the portion of Exodus where you start to slog through a little bit, right? Because you you go from like, hey, the the plagues and the Red Sea is parted and the Ten Commandments are given to the, and the temples will have this and then they'll be wrapped in that and then you'll have this and then you'll have that. And there's just a whole lot of detail. A lot of times as we read through that, that's when as you're reading the Bible, you're also thinking about all the, I know that probably doesn't happen to many of you, right? Where you're like, and I also need this at Walmart. And, and the, the so, you know, some of, not many of us, but maybe some of us that's happened to before, this is a portion where that happens. But what I want to draw your attention to today is the reason that such explicit details are given about the building of the tabernacle is because of what God is trying to teach the Israelites with that establishment. What he's telling them is, I am giving this sanctuary, this tabernacle to you, and it is to go at the center of your camp, and it is to be a constant reminder of my presence, my plan, and my promises. It's supposed to remind you, I am always with you, and I am at the center of life. So he'll even tell them, hey, wherever you set up camp, the tabernacle goes in the center, and then you set yourselves up in concentric circles around it, so that they are all always being reminded our life is centered on God, on his presence, on his plan, and on his promises. The tabernacle is also given to the people of Israel to remind them that it is a sacred space, which makes them sacred people. Right? So, so God wants them and us to have something in our life to remind us we're not like everyone else. There is a different purpose. There's a different plan. So even as you read through the, the way the tabernacle is to be built, you, you find it's, it's requiring all of these special materials, all of these things that they probably don't have a lot of, but they're supposed to dedicate them first to furnishing the tabernacle. And what God is trying to do is set apart this space within their camp, within their life, to remind them of this is sacred to me, and I'm giving you something sacred because you are sacred. You're not like everyone else. You're not just going to do the things you've always done, but I'm calling you into a completely new way of life. And the tabernacle is supposed to be a constant reminder to the people of Israel that God is here and God has a plan. Now, now for us, that jump between a, a people wandering in the wilderness with a tabernacle at the center of their camp to 2020 Tulsa, Oklahoma, is massive. Right? We, we don't all wander through the desert together. We don't have a, a portable uh, worship tent that we set up each time we, we stop. And, and yet there are some portions of our life that are supposed to remind us that, that we too still need a sacred space to remind us that we are sacred 
people. Right? The, the local church functions like that to a certain extent. It's different. Anybody, anybody grow up in church and ever get yelled at for like running in church or yelling in church or fighting in church or kissing in church? Or All the hands drop quickly there of like, no, no. You didn't get yelled at. Your parents just talked to you quietly when you got home because they didn't want anyone to know what you were doing either, right? Uh, but yeah, there, there's just that. There's, we still kind of have this understanding of like, hey, the church is a sacred space. And we're sacred people, so we should behave a little bit differently here, right? There's just, there's certain things that maybe you say or do outside that you don't do here. Now, now that is good for us to a point, but it can also get kind of twisted because it, it can quickly turn into like, well, God is restricted here. And this is the only place we really have to behave. And this is the only place we really have to think about his presence. And this is all of those kinds of things. And yet, it, it is still important and good for us to have some sacred space and some sacred rhythms in our life. The people of Israel were given the tabernacle. One of the things that God gives us is the local church. This is a place for us to be reminded every week that we are sacred people, that God has called us apart, that for all the places we're tempted to belong, for all the places we're tempted to give our identities, we still have a centering here with Jesus Christ and in community with one another. But there's an even more personal application of the tabernacle for us, and it's that we are the tabernacle. So as, as you keep reading through the New Testament, we find in John chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right, so again, listen to the language of, of Exodus 25.8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And then when Jesus comes, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Again, pointing us towards this idea that what God did in the tabernacle for the people of Israel, of this is the place God dwells, he now does for all of us in Christ Jesus, saying this is the fullness of God dwelling among you. So you no longer need one particular sacred space. You don't just need a tabernacle or a temple, but you need the power, the presence, the person of Jesus Christ. And so as you keep reading through the scriptures, what we find is that Jesus perfectly fulfills all of these Old Testament laws and requirements. That all of the symbolism pointing towards God's presence and God's activity, it all culminates in Jesus for us. Right, Paul later tells us that because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us, that we ourselves are now the dwelling place of God. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. He's telling us we have become the tabernacle, which means your life is the place where God's plan his promises, where they, they dwell and where they're made known to the world. And so if, if my life is the place where God dwells, then that means he probably has some opinions about my life and what I do. Right? It, it, so think of it this way. My life hosts his holiness. And if my life hosts his holiness, then he gets to have some say about what I do and what I don't do. Now, if, if you come over to my house uh, this afternoon, you're going to notice there are some things that we do on a Sunday afternoon that might be different than what you do on a Sunday afternoon, right? But when you're in my house, guess what? I don't care if you like it or not. Why? Because it's my house. 
The Chiefs play at noon today, so you know what we do? We drive through and grab lunch on the way home, and we eat lunch with the TV on, and we watch the Chiefs. Now, I know some of you are like, hey, the Sabbath and family day, and I just don't know if that's a good example to the church, and I really wish you were a better Christian, to which all of it, I say, like, go to your house. I don't care. This is what we do. This is my house, right? When I go to some of your houses, there are things you do that I don't do. Like some of you would go to your house for dinner and you put two forks on the table. I don't know what that's for. I don't know why you do it. But okay. I mean, I'll like scratch my head with one and eat with the other. I don't know. You know, until you tell me otherwise, I'll fix it. Or some of you, how many of you are uh, no shoes in the house people? Anybody? It's okay. You can admit it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's good. Uh, I, will, I will do that. Now, in our house, we have teenage boys, so we are a please keep your shoes on all the time kind of house, right? Just for everyone's safety, everyone's convenience, let's do that. But, but when you go to someone else's house, they have certain ways and things that they do, and you don't really get to be offended by it. Why? Because it's their home. They're the ones who are in charge of that. They're the ones who have to live with it. Now, if we take that same idea and we really believe God gives the Israelites the tabernacle as the place of his presence, and he's very specific about what goes on there and what goes in there and how it happens, and if we're going to say, okay, we have now become the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God through Christ Jesus, then it means God still has opinions about what goes in and what goes on in my life. And that's where we start to think, okay, this dwelling with God seemed really, really great when it was all about his power and his presence and his ability to lead me through every situation. But now it's starting to get a little inconvenient. Now he's starting to come and mess with stuff. Now he's starting to come and tell me, hey, now that you're following me, we don't do this anymore. We don't talk like that anymore. We don't behave this way. We don't treat people that way. We don't do any of this. But but he he really just kind of comes and and he gets invasive and he gets personal. And we'll see the Israelites fighting this battle over and over again as they walk with the Lord of, man, we love to be called his people. We don't always like all the stuff he asks us to do. We love to be called his chosen ones but we don't always want to release what he calls us to give up. It's kind of like if if you've ever hired maybe a a personal trainer or uh, a financial advisor. Again, in both situations, those people are incredibly helpful, right? A a personal trainer can help you identify, hey, where where do you want to get better? Where do you want to feel better? Here's kind of an exercise plan. Hey, tell me about what you're eating. Let's, let's talk about that. Tell me about what your goals are. Tell me about your history. Like for a personal trainer to really be effective, you've got to let them in the details of your life, right? And you've got to be honest about it. You know, so, so when they're, if they were asking me, I'd, I'd have to be honest of like, hey, what do you, what do you eat at nine o'clock? I'm like, uh, nothing. No, really. Uh, Oreos and milk. Um, you know, what do you eat for breakfast? Oreos and milk, uh, you know, and, and it's just like, well, it's milk. It's, you know, it's universal. So, uh, but, but there comes this point where you have to let them in. The financial advisor, like, tell me your goals. Oh, my goals. I want to be debt-free, and I want to pay for my kids to go to college, and I want to have all the money I need to be generous. And they're like, okay, tell me how much money you have left over at the end of each month. You're like, yeah, let's not talk about that. Tell me about your spending. Ah, let's not worry about that. Tell me about your... And so what happens is we enter into some of these spaces and we're saying, I want to get physically healthy. I want to get financially healthy. And somebody comes and says, okay, here's what it's going to take to get there. And that's when we decide like, yeah, that gym membership's not really necessary. 
right? I don't really need that financial advisor. I'm pretty sure they're just trying to get my money. Uh, you know, and, and we start to make up these excuses and we just default back to our normal way of life. Why? Because we don't want people in our business. And sometimes we have the same response with God. He says, make a sanctuary for me. I'm going to come and dwell among you. And when God comes and dwells among us, he's going to let us know, I know everything that's going on in your life. I know all the sins and I know all the struggles. I know where you're tempted to do it on your own instead of trusting me. And he's going to come and he's going to start to point, point and, and put his finger in those places. He's going to shine light into the darkness. And our proper response is exactly what we sang this morning of, Lord, I'm available. Just, I, I surrendered this to you. I don't, I don't know how that became such a mess. I don't know how that became such a disaster. But just come in and you work and move and I'll trust you and I'll follow you and I'll do the things that you're calling me and telling me to do. And yet, a lot of times our response winds up being a little more like the Israelites of, hey, I like the idea, but not necessarily the practice. So Lord, can we, can we reach a compromise? Can we figure out a way where we do some of what you want and some of what I want. And so as you keep reading through the, the story of Exodus, we come to Exodus chapter 32. Now in Exodus 32, Moses is still up on the mountain. He's still meeting with God. The, the scripture tells us that he, he is there for 40 days. And so it's been this extended period, the longest period since they've left Egypt, that the Israelites have not seen Moses. And it's a very big deal for a couple reasons. First of all, Moses is their primary connection to God. Before Moses came from the wilderness and began to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, they didn't know exactly how God was acting or what God was doing. Moses was the one who led them out of Egypt. Moses was the one who stood at the banks of the Red Sea and led them across. Moses was the one that when they cried out from water, prayed to God, and God brought water to them. Moses was the one when they were hungry, he cried out to God, and the Lord sent manna and quail. When they fought their enemies, Moses was the one who stood above them with his hands lifted high until God gave them the victory. They associated the presence of God with the presence of Moses. And now they've been 30, 40 days without Moses, and they're starting to wonder, if he's gone, does that mean God is gone? Because he's the one who talks to him. He's the one who tells us what he says. He's the one. They, they were in a position of complete reliance on Moses. And so we can read their response to that in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed to him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now when the Israelites make golden calves, it's, it's tempting to think they are completely abandoning God and pursuing an entirely new form of worship. But that's not completely what is going on. I mean, even if you listen to that, they, they say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. 
and tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So what's actually happening is the Israelites are just trying to control their experience of God. They're remaking the image of God in the image of the culture that they knew. They were making him more accessible. They were making him more comfortable. They were making him more controllable. In the absence of Moses, they defaulted to Egypt. And they said, well, in Egypt, all of our gods were represented by idols. In Egypt, that's how we knew where the God was. That's how we knew to worship him. In Egypt, we had altars that were associated with each of the gods. So we're going to create a space where we can bring our sacrifices. And even what Aaron is telling them is this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. These golden calves represent him. And so it's, it's important for us to understand that they're not necessarily completely abandoning God as much as they are trying to redefine who he is and to restrict what he does. By building the idols, they're creating a space where they say, this is where God dwells. And wherever these idols are is where he is. They're, they're making a God in their image. They're not necessarily breaking the first commandment to have no other gods before him as much as they're breaking the second commandment to not have any idols that they worship. And so as, as we're reading through that Exodus story, it's tempting for us to think, well, okay, this part doesn't apply to me. Okay, you know, of, of all the things that I've done wrong in my life, I've never told my wife, bring me all your gold jewelry and I will put it in the fireplace and I will get out my pocket knife and I will melt it and I will refine it. And I will, you know, first of all, because if Angie brought me all her gold jewelry, that'd be a very small little calf. Right? Like we would just be like, she might figure out it wasn't actually gold. Uh, you know, who knows what might happen in that setting. But Aaron says, bring it all to me. And remember, the Israelites have plundered the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. So they bring all of their gold and Aaron throws it into the fire and then he he forms it and he molds it and he makes it into the image of a calf. And then it comes out and he says, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And we, we sit there and think, oh man, I would never have done that. I would have been saying, let's wait for Moses. Don't give up. Right? And, and then I think if, if we really look, the, the application of the golden calves is not so much the times where we are tempted to completely abandon Jesus and serve some other false god. But it's more the times where we're tempted to say, okay, I know this is what the scriptures require. I know this is what God says. I know this is how Jesus has revealed him to, himself to me. But that's a little uncomfortable. And so in those spaces, then we do adopt the Aaron approach to worship of, I'm just going to kind of shave and carve and shape this down to something that's a little more manageable, a little more socially acceptable, a little more comfortable, a little more in my image. And, and so we, so we kind of say, okay, I know this is what the Bible says maybe about sexuality and, and how it should work. But you know what? It's just, it's really, it's not easy. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of choose to disregard some of that. I know this is what the scripture says about materialism and greed and about giving to the poor and about living a generous life and giving away where my right hand doesn't know what my left hand is doing. But you know, that it's just, it's 2020. It's not really practical to live that way. They might take more than they deserve. So I'm just going to kind of shave some of those portions off. 
I know the scripture says that there's no place for hatred, division, anger, malice, rage in the life of a believer. But, you know, they just don't really know the idiots that I'm dealing with here. So I, I've got to just kind of shave this and, and construct that and do that. And the whole time we're looking back and saying, this is the Lord who I serve. But it, as you shave, as you adjust, as you remold, eventually you wind up with something that looks nothing like Jesus Christ. And we see this all over our nation, all over our culture, all over the world. Of There are these various forms of Christianity where the words sound similar, but it's not quite the same. Because we've decided, hey, those parts we don't like and we're not comfortable with. So we're, maybe we're not even going to reject them, we're just going to ignore them. We'll just pretend they're not there and we'll just kind of choose this path instead. And in each of those moments, we have to recognize we're giving in to that temptation of Aaron of we're trying to remake God in our own image. We're trying to restrict him, redefine him, and tell him this is the place where we're going to worship you. God's intention was to establish a tabernacle in the center of the community. Aaron decides, hey, we're going to build the calves and tell God this is where you hang out. Right? And wherever these go, that's where we know we're going to meet with you. The message God is trying to get across is, no, I'm going to dwell with you. And because I dwell with you, I'm going to be with you in every moment, in every place, at all times. And, and Aaron, and they're just kind of saying, like, oh, we're not sure. So Moses eventually, while he's on the mountain, the Lord tells him, you need to go back down. Your people, right? Have you, as a parent, have you ever said that to, to your spouse? Your children. It's never good. My wife has never said, your children are the kindest, most generous children I've ever, you know, it's always like, your children act just like you, um, not in the good ways. And, and so the, God has this moment with Moses, your people are down there losing their minds, get down there. So Moses goes down and, and he, he pulls Aaron aside. He's like, what is going on? And, and Aaron, again, kind of how we respond, like, I don't really know, Moses. I, uh, you know, the, the people... The people, they wanted something to work. You were gone a long time, long time, Moses. And so the people, they brought me some gold, and I, I didn't know what to do. So I just threw it in a fire, and this calf, this calf came out of the fire. And we just sit there like, Aaron, come on. And, and yet, how many times do we have that? Like, I don't, I don't really know what happened. I was just, I was worshiping God one day, and, and then I... I had this terrible porn addiction I couldn't get rid of. I just threw some stuff in the fire and it came out and jumped on me. I don't, I don't know what happened. I was a good employee and then suddenly I was stealing from my boss. I don't, I don't know. It just jumped on me. I don't know. I was kind. I was generous. And then, no, no, no. That's not what, what happened was when we make willful and deliberate choices to worship God according to our own terms and our own ways, it always leads us away from him. Right? It, it, just remember the language. Aaron took a tool and shaped the image. This is what we do. When we're rejecting God's presence, when we're rejecting his dwelling among us, we are shaping him back into a more manageable, a more controllable experience. And what we're left with is not at all what he intends for us to have. And so, so Moses comes and, and God does judge the people of Israel in this moment for their unfaithfulness to him. And once again, Moses intercedes on their behalf and God responds and, and stops the punishment and then Moses goes back up on the mountain to meet with God once again. And we're going to finish there in kind of Exodus chapter 34, 
where it tells us a little bit about his experience. So Moses, he, he comes down, he has the Ten Commandments, right? And, and when he sees the people, they're worshiping the calf and, and all the nonsense is going on. He throws them down and they break. So now he has to go back up to, to get them, right? I mean, it really feels like that moment where as a parent, sometimes you tell your kids, look what you made me do. All right, I didn't want to do this. You made me do it. And Moses almost has that moment with the people of like, you have broken the Lord's requirement. You've broken his covenant. I'm going to go back up and intercede for you again. And so Moses goes back up. And as he's going back up, he's pleading with the Lord. I just want to experience you. Just let me be in your presence. Just let me see your face. And the Lord tells him, you can't see my face and live, but I will pass by you will have an experience of me. And after the Lord shows Moses his glory, reveals himself to it, we read the results in Exodus chapter 34. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to go near him. When God shows up, Moses has a transformational experience in God's presence. Now, this is kind of a, a one-off, right? This is not really something we see happen again in scriptures where people experience God and then they have this glowing, radiant face. And as you keep reading that story, you see it actually comes to the point where the, the people of Israel tell Moses, we can't take the radiance that's shining off of you. Will you please cover yourself? And so he puts a veil over his face. But it, it is a reminder to us of when we experience God, there should be a noticeable and oftentimes visible transformation that occurs in our life. We reflect what we worship. This is what we're learning here. The, the people of Israel, they had attached their whole experience of God to Moses. And so now Moses comes back down and kind of once and for all, God sets the standard of this is my prophet. This is my man. He is your leader. You are going to listen to him. But Moses had to get to this point of, hey, I don't care if people reject me. I don't care if they don't want to be around me. All I really want is to experience the presence of God. And Moses' experience, when he comes down, it does change his life. He is completely different. Right, to the point that other people aren't real sure they want to be around him. But if that, if that truth remains for you and I today, that we reflect what we worship, then it means other people can kind of help us understand what we're reflecting. So just ask yourself a, a few questions this morning. If people know more about who you vote for than who you worship, you're reflecting the wrong things. If people know more about what I hate and what makes me angry than what God has done in my life, I'm reflecting the wrong things. If they know more about the teams that I cheer for, the clothes that I wear, the trips that I go on, than they do the radical transformation Jesus has brought in my life, then I'm reflecting the wrong things. If people are surprised when they hear that I follow Jesus, I'm reflecting the wrong things. Right? And, and so what, you, what you've got to look at then is if the answer is I'm reflecting the wrong things, maybe it's because you're spending time in the presence of the wrong gods. I mean, you can worship at that idol of politics, and it's going to get you anger. It's going to get you division. It's going to get you separation from your brothers and sisters. It's going to get you sleepless nights. 
going to get you anxiety. It's going to get you depression. Why? Because you're putting hope in a place that cannot sustain it. You can worship at the idol of materialism and greed and think, here my security will be found. But you're going to reflect a a hard-hearted, closed-handed face to the world. You can worship at the idol of your family. You can worship at the idol of your job. You can worship at any of these things. But all you're going to reflect back to the world is a sense of hopelessness and despair. It's only when we surrender to the power, the presence, the experience of Jesus, the God who dwells among us, that we then can reflect his love and his joy and his peace and his patience and his kindness and his goodness and his faithfulness and his gentleness and his self-control. And so for me, it means there is a real evaluation that has to occur on a regular basis of if I'm reflecting the wrong things, maybe it's because I'm worshiping the wrong things. Maybe I've given too much attention over here to politics and to the news and to all of that. I mean, if I'm spending more time in those apps and on those channels than I am in the scriptures, I'm not going to reflect them. If I'm spending more time pursuing my hobbies and my leisure than I am worship and service, I'm not going to reflect them. If my discipline to go to work or to school or the gym or anything else exceeds my discipline to be part of a worshiping community, I'm not going to reflect it. Moses models this this idea for us of our number one concern in life is not the approval of others, but it's the presence of Jesus. And we just got to get to this point of I'm just going to sit there. I'm going to worship. I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to pray. I'm going to let him speak. I'm going to let him challenge. I'm going to let him convict. And in every space that he reveals I'm lacking, I believe that he is sufficient. And so I'm just going to come and I'm going to say, Lord, show me an accurate picture of who I am. Show me the reflection I'm presenting to the world. And in that space, help me to adopt that attitude of Moses, of Lord, all I want is to see your glory. All I want is to be in your presence. All I want is to be the place in which you dwell. Moses had to get over the idea that some people wouldn't like him. When he comes back down, the response is not, oh my goodness, Moses has been with the Lord. The response is, Moses, please cover your face. We can't take it. We can't look at you. We don't know what to do. When you dedicate your life to being with Jesus, Some will celebrate you, but others will reject you. And they won't want to be around you. They won't want to have anything to do with you. And in that space, you're going to be tempted once again of, am I going to keep going this way of Jesus, or am I going to try to remake him into a more socially acceptable version where I can more easily fit in at school or at work? When you're the place where God dwells, you're always going to stand out. God calls the people out of Egypt into his presence. A presence that will go before them, a presence that will be with them, a presence that will never leave them. And he calls us into the same experience today. We are still the place where the holiness of God dwells. Not just in this building, but in these bodies. In this soul, in this mind, in this speech, with these actions, this is where God's plan, his promises are made known to the world around us. The world needs us to be the place where God dwells, to take his light, to shine with his radiance, and to receive whatever affirmation or rejection may come along with that. 
the answer to your, your needs this morning, the answer to your challenges, to your hurts, to your aches, is, is not reshaping God into something you can control or manage. It's just a, a simple prayer of surrender of, Lord, come have your way and take your place in my life again. Show me your glory. Show me your power. Show me your love. As you forgive my sin and drive these things out, Lord, may my life be radiant for you. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for you. The band's going to come back and lead us in a final song this morning. Jesus, we come to you today recognizing our tendency to both desire your presence and shy away from it at the same time. And Lord, we, we come with simple prayers of repentance and prayers of invitation. Will you forgive us, Lord, for trying to redefine or restrict your presence in our lives? And we invite you, Lord, to come and take your rightful place at the center of our lives, at the center of our thoughts, at the center of our actions. Jesus, be the center of every relationship that we have. Lord, we pray that we would seek an experience of your power and your presence more than we seek anything else in the world. More than we seek the approval of our friends. More than we seek acceptance in certain work or social circles. We understand, Lord, that we host your holiness and so we're going to be different. So, Jesus, will you come and fill us with your spirit again today. Remind us that we have been called out to be set apart. We're not going to fit in. We're not going to be accepted in every place and situation. But we will have life because you are with us. We will have peace in your presence. So Lord, will you come today and remind us that you are still the God who longs to dwell among us to live with us, to speak with us, to walk with us. We open our hearts, we open our minds to everything that you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.